there's just all these different assumptions underlying mainstream economic thinking that have really led to the challenges that we're in. So I would invite us and, and many folks, renegade economists, are inviting us to see economics in a new realm, to invite alternative ways of seeing economics, alternative economic theories and stories and patterns and ways that we can embody a post-capitalist, post-growth, post-profit economy today. Welcome to Entangled World, where we explore our interrelated existential, social, economic, ecological, and technological challenges, their underlying drivers, and how a more beautiful world might emerge. I'm your host, Najia Shawkat Lepsen. I'm a daughter of Pakistani Muslim immigrants, a mom, and an intersystems thinker. Join me on a journey to discover what is uniquely and meaningfully ours to do at this pivotal moment in time in service to the sacredness of life. My guest today is Della Duncan, a renegade economist. Areas of her livelihood garden include supporting individuals as a right livelihood coach, helping transition businesses and organizations as a post-capitalist consultant, teaching and facilitating courses and retreats on the work that reconnects and regenerative economics, and hosting the Upstream podcast, which challenges mainstream economic thinking through documentaries and conversations, including, most recently, The Green Transition, The Problem with Green Capitalism, and The Myth of Freedom Under Capitalism. Our current global capitalist economic system has provided many benefits to humanity, and the system was designed for those benefits to accrue to those at the top which is one of the reasons we have such massive inequality around the globe. Della and I talk about how capitalism is more like modern-day slavery and a tool for white supremacy and patriarchy. It is fueling the destruction of the planet from which it is compelled to extract, and it's a system that can't last forever. Della challenges the assumptions that are built into mainstream economics, that nature is commodifiable and we can objectify it and put a price on it, that humans are selfish beings out for our own self-interest, that work is something we don't value or enjoy doing, that humans aren't capable of collectively taking care of the land, and that it must be privatized to be cared for. And the biggest assumption of all, that limitless growth on a finite planet is possible and even desirable. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you do, please subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app or subscribe to the Entangled World Pod YouTube channel. Hi, Della. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I'm really excited to talk with you. And so to begin, how would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you. And thank you so much for having me. I'm Della Duncan. I have my mythopoetic identity as a renegade economist. And there's many plants in my livelihood garden that manifest as renegade economics. I am the host of the Upstream podcast, so fellow podcaster around mm -hmm. alternative economics, uh, documentaries and conversations. I'm a right livelihood coach supporting folks in terms of Buddhist economics, aligning work and values. I'm a post-capitalist business consultant, a teacher of regenerative economics, facilitator of the work that reconnects, 
I work with Fritjof Capra on the Systems View of Life course, and I have a, a plant caretaking for my mom and a plan of starting a nonprofit related to donut economics. So co-founding the California Donut Economics Coalition. So those are some of the plants in my livelihood garden by way of introduction. I love that. And I love that there's so many different plants growing in your livelihood garden, because I think often many of us feel compelled to sort of pick one thing that we're supposed to focus on. And so it's nice to always hear people who are focused on many different things that have that are interconnected and sort of have intersecting values and impacts that come through. So as you know, we are facing many different interrelated existential crises at this moment in time. And at the same time, there are so many people doing amazing work towards working towards a more beautiful world. And so I just wanted to kind of kick off this conversation with asking you what feels most alive to you in this moment. I think what's most alive is the tension or the paradox of our time. So particularly working with folks who are trying to align their work with their values, just the the inspiration and the sense of contribution and the sense of joy and all the people who are breaking from work that they find exploitive or extractive and really embarking on alternative paths. But that at the same time paired with this real sense of a lack of time, a sense of precariousness, a sense of overwhelm. So just this sense of uh, a challenge in the moment of our time with our very real economic challenges and pressures with our desire to contribute right now. So I'd say that that paradox or that mm -hmm. challenge is most alive for me right now. I'd love to just kind of hear like your story of how did you awaken to understanding that there's something not quite right with the way that we're living. What has that journey been like for you? Yeah, I had glimpses growing up of alternative realities. I had a course in high school called Cultures of Peace, of different cultures that had sustained peace for long periods of time. I had one class in college that was economic anthropology, which were stories of alternative economies like mutual aid and gift economies that were very inspiring. Communities who had managed collective resources without exploiting them or what's called in mainstream economics, the tragedy of the commons. So I had a glimpse into alternatives then and there. Um, but really, it was after college when I, I directed the Vagina Monologues by Eve Ensler. And that work inspired me to want to go into violence prevention work, so sexual violence prevention work. And so my first job after college was working as a rape crisis counselor. And as you can imagine, that work was very challenging. But what was even more challenging at the time was how little our economy valued the work we were doing. So we were doing work in a nonprofit that was state mandated, meaning every survivor had the right to an advocate, a support person. And yet we had to continue to apply for and compete for dwindling funding from the state. And we had to, it felt like beg for funding from tech companies and police 
institutions and other companies around us to be able to do our basic work. So I was really struggling with why did this work that felt so important and useful to society seem to have little or no value in the economy that we were embedded in. And it was that compared with rising inequality, rising homelessness, uh, gentrification, friends having to leave their, their homes and communities, that I was like, something is not right with our current economic system. And I really embarked on a journey from there to try to go upstream to the root causes to figure out what is causing these challenges of our times. Yeah. And I think that's something that we certainly have in common. And that's sort of what connected us initially is that we both have had this interest in trying to dig deeper to try to understand what are some of the root causes of the various intersecting crises that we're facing. And I know that you sort of call yourself a renegade economist. I think a, a, a term coined first by Kate Rayworth, who's a brilliant unorthodox ec economist and who wrote the brilliant book Donut Economics. What is it about our current economic system that you feel like needs to change and why? Yeah, well, I'm thinking of this article by Dr. Adam Grant. He has this article said that's called Does Studying Economics Breed Greed? And in it, he goes over all these studies that show that studying economics, mainstream economics, breeds greed. So he does things like he shows that, ec that ec for economic students' values like altruism drop in importance to them. He finds that economics professors give the least amount of money to charity than any other professors of any other field. He finds that if an economics student found an envelope of lost money on the ground in a building, they'd be the least likely to turn the money in. Um, and even that being exposed to mainstream economic rhetoric uh, makes us far less kind, compassionate, and empathetic. So what is it about mainstream economic thinking that leads to this sense of who we are as humans? So there's a few assumptions. One of them is related to nature. So a view or a paradigm of seeing nature as commodifiable. So we can objectify nature. We can put a price value on nature. We can financialize it. It's worth more dead than alive, right? It doesn't have inherent or intrinsic value. It's not a living being. There's another assumption around who we are as humans, this idea that we are homo economicus, rational, self-interested beings out for our own self-interest. And not only that that's who we are, but that's what's ideal for the functioning of our economic system. There's also an assumption that we believe work is a disutility, meaning work is something that we don't have very much value in or we don't enjoy doing. We want to work as little as possible. There's another myth or assumption that we have something called the tragedy of the commons, this idea that we as humans are not able to caretake land or ecosystems or nature collectively, that it must be privatized in order to be taken care of. There's an assumption that progress, development is monetized by way of money, growth of profit, or growth of gross domestic product. Like that is what is seen as good or developing or the end goal. And also that limitless growth is possible on a finite planet. That's another assumption underlying mainstream economic thinking. There's another that capitalism is the only system. As Margaret Thatcher once said, Tina, there is no alternative. 
So there's all these different assumptions underlying mainstream economic thinking. Another is that economics is a science, like a hard science, like math. It can be mathematized, quantified, that the quantifiable is more important than the qualitative. You know, there's that element of it. And yeah, so there's just all these different assumptions underlying mainstream economic thinking that have really led to the challenges that we're in. So I would invite us and, and many folks, renegade economists, are inviting us to see economics in a new realm, to invite alternative ways of seeing economics, alternative economic theories and stories and patterns and ways that we can embody a post-capitalist, post-growth, post-profit economy today. Yeah, it's, you know, it's so interesting because I think a lot about when I talk to people about capitalism and the origins of capitalism and sort of how long the system has been in place, many people don't sort of know that like this, this is not a system of ec economics that has been in place forever. Like we created it several hundred years ago. And and we'll dig into that a little bit about sort of the origins and, and, and why it's continued to exist. But this idea that there isn't something else out there that could also work for a global humanity is a story that I think is it's like a it's like a single minded narrative. And there's so many other stories and other narratives out there of communities and groups of people that are working together in a system of economics that is very different. And so you and your co-host actually recently did a documentary on your upstream podcast called The Myth of Freedom Under Capitalism, which I thought was excellent. And anybody listening, I would definitely recommend you to check it out. And in it, you talk about the origins of capitalism and how the enclosure movement in the 15th century in England really sort of kicked off this, the sort of what we would call modern capitalism. I'm wondering if you could talk about that, because I think, you know, I think sometimes we just feel like, oh, capitalism is the only system that works. Like communism didn't work. Socialism doesn't work. And so capitalism is the only system that can possibly work. And how could we ever get out of this? And I think it's that sort of period of time is such a significant turning point in history and without which our current capitalist system could not have been born. So I'm wondering if you could sort of unpack that a little bit. Yeah, happy to. And yeah, you're really speaking to the assumption that economics is ahistorical, that it doesn't have historical ties and legacies. So thank you for bringing this in. So the story you're referring to, this story of this time in the United Kingdom, where folks were under feudalism, which also had its challenges, um, and yet more more people had access to commons, right? Common ways to fish, to be involved in the forest, to grow their own food, more a deeper and more connected relationship to place and to land and to feeding oneself and one's community. Then we had the enclosure of the commons. So this way that people, peasants, were forced away from the commons and away from their land into cities. Moving into cities, they no longer had a way to feed themselves or to access the, the water for fishing, the woods for firewood or for hunting. And so they had to sell their labor in order to receive money to pay for their basic needs, such as food and shelter. So that was called the enclosure of the commons, people being forced off of the commons and 
into the cities and the beginning of this kind of industrial growth society that we're currently in and the wage labor or wage slavery system. And of course, I also have to acknowledge that at that same time, there was also slavery that was happening, which is, of course, another form of slavery, and also indigenous land theft and exploitation of indigenous people, including slavery as well. And so all of this really boosted or amplified the industrialization and the extreme wealth accumulation of the capitalist class that then we see rippled out and now is all over. And just to say that in our one of our more recent conversations, we interviewed someone named Malcolm Harris, who talked about Palo Alto in California, where I'm zooming in from. And he he talks about how California, being one of the last frontiers of capitalism, has now even amplified capitalism even more strongly through Silicon Valley, the digitization, surveillance capitalism, et cetera. So just to say that the exploitation and extraction didn't begin and end there, it's, it's evolved and developed into many different ways. But I think you're right. When we see that historical perspective, one, we see wealth differently. We see what Karl Marx called primitive accumulation, how the wealth today, the power today really was accumulated and formed due to legacies of slavery, of land theft, and the enclosure of the commons. So yeah, thank you for bringing in that historical perspective. One of the things that sort of came to my mind when I was listening to your documentary is the fact that many of us think we're free when we have a quote-unquote good job and we earn a salary and then we're free to spend that money in whatever way we want to buy the goods and services or the experiences that we want. And, you know, what you explore is that capitalism is actually more like modern day slavery and a tool for white supremacy and patriarchy. And you've talked about that a bit, but I'm just wondering if there's anything more that you want to say related to that, because it's a very complex issue, but <laughs> there's lots of things to explore there. But that's something that as I started to learn more about our economic system, just like really became clear to me as to why our economic system is at the core of so many of the social struggles that we're facing now. Yes. Yeah, you're reminding me one of the big insights from the documentary was this learning around when wage slavery was first introduced in the United States. People fought it to often to the death and saying, no, we do not want this. You know, we want to be able to meet our own needs through growing our own food or through having access to commons and to land. So yes, what is now normal was once, you know, fought for. And you're right, there are alternatives. And then to your point, yes, capitalism. So I've heard folks say we shouldn't use the term racialized capitalism because that implies there's other forms of capitalism that aren't racialized when there aren't. So just to make the explicit connection between capitalism, which is a supremacy of the capitalist class, is directly interconnected, tied to patriarchal supremacy. We can look into feminist economics for this, but the amount of care work or women's labor that is necessary, reproductive labor is often called, to uphold capitalism. And there's really interesting stories around what happened for women and witches during the time of the enclosures, right? Folks who were very close to the land and to medicine making and to forests, et cetera. 
So there's that piece. And then, of course, that capitalism is directly connected to white supremacy. So white supremacy in terms of the exploitation of labor, of people of color, and also of the global south, what's sometimes called the, the core and the periphery, but just the ways in which we can see that capitalism has has become the way it is due to mass exploitation of people and land and resources of the global south and the yeah from the periphery to the imperial core jason hickel has a great book called the divide where he really says you know who developed who and instead of the global north kind of supporting the global south through aid and all this it's actually the global south that has developed the global north through the transference of wealth and land and resources and labor so yes absolutely Patriarchal supremacy, white supremacy, human supremacy, and capitalist supremacy are all deeply interconnected historically and today. Yeah, I read Jason Hickel. Jason Hickel's brilliant, and I've read both of his recent books, The The Divide and Less Is More. And one of the things in The Divide that I just found so fascinating was, yeah, the fact that basically the even with sort of money flowing from the global north to the global south in terms of distributions of wealth that there is, I think it's $2 trillion, or maybe I'm getting the number wrong, but trillions of dollars of wealth actually flows from the global south to the global north. And much of that is related to debt repayments for things that happened years and years ago where like the countries have paid off their principal but they're still they they still owe an enormous amount of interest to nations that are much wealthier than they are and this is something i've been thinking a lot about lately is as there's been a lot of movement in the us for example with the inflation reduction act and under the biden administration a greater move towards renewable energy and electrifying our economy and a move away from fossil fuel in the ways that the bill has been sold to many. But this connection that I think that many people don't make, which is that in order for the U.S. to electrify, they are actually dependent on extracting from the global south. So whether you're talking about extraction of minerals or displacement of people, the fact that minerals like cobalt and lithium that are needed for electric batteries in electric cars or electric bikes or solar panels come from many of the countries in the global south, like the Democratic Republic of Congo or Chile or whatever it is. And in order for us to electrify our economies here in the U.S., that we actually need to extract them from places that means that we have to displace people from their homes. We create enormous environmental destruction in order to get those minerals. And so one of and this is, I suppose, related to um, another documentary that I know you did on your podcast around sort of green capitalism. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you even mean by green capitalism and why that isn't a sort of true pathway forward if we're really looking towards supporting the regeneration or the thriving of life on Earth. Yes, so I was on a call with some friends, comrades from the Global South, and I'm in the Global North, San Francisco, and someone on the call from the Global South said something really interesting. They said, a green transition for the Global North means an open casket for the Global South. And they were referring to exactly what you're speaking about, this idea that to take our economy and the current growth imperative 
and the current exponential growth trajectory and to simply make it renewable or green means an open casket for the global south due to all the ways that you spoke about. One reframe that I've found helpful for this is that the green transition or green capitalism is the move from a fossil fuel-based economy to a mineral-based economy, right? It's still based on something and it's still extractive and exploitive. So what folks, again, will bring in his name, Jason Hickel, but of course there's others, are really saying is one of the elements of capitalism that we need to address, one of the acupuncture points is the growth imperative. That if we're continuing to, he says, make renewable a growing economy, it's like trying to fill an ever-growing hole in the ground, right? Because it's going to keep growing, and so we're going to keep needing more and more resources. So really, we need to move from growth as an end goal to growth as a means, or become growth agnostic, as Kate Rayworth would say. We need to change the goal of our economy to instead of blind growth or limitless growth, as well as the, the goal of our businesses, to something more like the meaning of human needs while staying within consideration of the needs of the planet. Or something even more ambitious, which is something like health or thriving or happiness for people in the planet. And that would then come to a very different relationship with, with growth. And growth would then be a means to an end and not an end in itself. Yeah. So can we unpack that a little bit for maybe folks who aren't sort of familiar with the connections between our economic system and ecological destruction? Why is it that ecological destruction is inherently tied to our current capitalist economic system? So currently, our measurement and our goal for progress or development for the individual is more accumulation of wealth and also more income, right? If you take a job of equal pay, but it maybe gives you so much more vitality and benefits to your life, it's seen as a lateral move. And if, forbid, you would actually take a job for lesser pay, even if it brought you more time with family or more sense of joy or being on a team or more sense of purpose, it's seen as like going backwards or like a bad move, right? And then for our businesses, a business that doesn't make more profit after a year makes less profit after a year, shrinks, right? That's not seen as healthy. Yeah. And then an economy, economy that doesn't grow, that doesn't grow largely, that shrinks or contracts is seen as not helpful. So what does that growth mean? That growth means more impact. Jason Hickel, again, says something like growth is directly this idea of how fast our economy is cannibalizing the natural world. That's what growth is. It is cannibalizing our natural world. It requires inputs. So when that is our goal, when that is our metric of success, that is what is continued to be done. And unfortunately, marketing and consumerism and all of this makes us to have endless wants and needs to be able to continue to consume more and more and more. And again, an economy that stagnates or an economy that's not growing is not seen as healthy or, or well. And in fact, there's very political power related to this too, the G7 is related to size of economies and whatnot. So this is all having a huge impact on our planet, where growth and, and development is seen as this unidirectional growth imperative. So that's why folks like Kate Rayworth and Donut Economics, she's saying, what if the goal was meeting human needs while staying within the needs of the planet, while being in consideration of the needs of the planet? In her view, using the donut model, 
She says, there is no developed country. Think about that. There is no developed country because she says, there is no country that is meeting all of the human needs of the people in that country while staying within consideration of the needs of their ecosystem. It doesn't exist. Think of that reframe. So yes, growth is directly tied and the goal of capitalism is directly tied to the cannibalization of our ecosystems. And I think that's a that's sort of a gut punch, right? That's like, there's literally no country on earth that is staying within the ecological boundaries and continuing to meet human needs. And I think many of us often think in sort of binaries, like it's capitalism or it's communism. But in reality, life doesn't exist in in binaries. And it actually exists in interconnected relationships that are influencing each other in all directions. And so Maybe shifting from capitalism looks like a shift towards some other different kind of global economic system, but maybe it's more of a decentralized, diversified, with a lot of different systems of exchange operating in various places. And so I'm curious as to what do you foresee a shift away from capitalism looks like toward real freedom and thriving of life? on this planet. Hmm. Yeah, I want to I want to share one kind of vision that I had. I was doing this vision al- alternative visions of the economy and I just imagined this more beautiful, just vibrant, thriving economy and that it was so inviting and also so inclusive that the old economy simply fell away. That people felt so yeah. much more drawn to it because they knew there was more health and more connection and more vitality. Like, I really feel like it's a win-win-win. Um, and I feel that that inclusive piece is really important because oftentimes we have utopias that are quite isolated. Like folks will live in an eco-village and it'll be, they'll, they'll have really kind of gone away from capitalism in a lot of ways, perhaps, but it doesn't impact the majority. So how do we broaden those islands of alternatives and make them truly radically inclusive? So this requires individual shift, but also huge systemic changes of of things like our monetary system, ownership over land systems, and also governments. Another alternative way of seeing economics that that I like to think about is it comes from two feminist economists, Gibbs and Graham. They say that we actually perform diverse economies every day. And they say that when we talk about capitalism as all pervasive, we actually give it more power than we need to. So, for example, in your day, you know, you might wake up and care for your child. That's the caring economy, right? Or the feminist economy. Mm -hmm. You might say hello to a neighbor or give a ride to a neighbor, right? That's the sharing economy. You might donate some of your used clothing. That's the gift economy. You know, put something on on Facebook free store, you know, Facebook buy nothing group. That's the gift economy, the sharing economy. You might take your child to the library. That's the sharing economy, right? You might stop for lunch. We have Arizmendi Bakery, which is a cooperatively owned bakery here in San Francisco. It's a worker co-op. That's the cooperative economy, right? I might go and support a local women's shelter. That's the nonprofit economy, right? So just to say that there's all these other alternative economies that we participate in all the time. So one thing is, how do we water those alternative economies? How do we uplift them? How do we rise them out of the global sea of capitalism, make people know more about them? Time banking, community land trusts, worker self-directed nonprofits, share shops, right? 
How do we rise these complementary currencies and then make them more inclusive and expand them so that more of us can be drawn to them as we as we see the benefits to them? Yeah, that's sort of bringing up for me how much of what many women do around the world is so devalued and not considered like a productive, mm. quote unquote, productive part of our economy. Um, and it's really just it's such a harmful story, right? Like and if you even think about, you know, if you're if you're a mother, the work that you put into raising a human is enormous and it's so devalued in our current economic system and our sort of global ways that we value product being productive in this economy and there's so many women who feel almost like a sense of shame around like oh I'm a stay-at-home mom I'm staying at home to change to to raise my child and 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 I think what I love about what you're sharing is that there are many different ways to think about how each of us as humans can contribute towards our collective well-being. And that just because we don't sort of in our current financial system economically value certain behaviors that that like that's made up. We made that up at some point and that's not the way it has to be. And, and we can shift that. And so I guess the question I have for you is like, you know, for somebody who's listening, who's like, I get it. I, you know, I'm I'm on board. I, I want to untether myself from a conventional job and from, you know, our current society that like requires me to make money in order to survive. How can I create a livelihood for myself that contributes towards the thriving of all life that isn't based on extraction? Like, how do you go about doing that? Yes. So I want to invite us and, and folks listening into a metaphor. So a metaphor to guide this question. So that we each have a right livelihood garden or a regenerative livelihood garden. And the first question for you, as you were just saying, is what are all the plants in your garden? Meaning, what are all the ways you contribute to this time right now? And to first expand your view of work and contribution. I want you to include those plants that you do that generate financial fruits, but also the plants that you do that generate other types of fruits or medicines. So include a plant for your caretaking, whether that's parenting or caretaking an elderly person or a person with special needs, caretaking land, stewarding land. Also, if you have any art making, include that as a plant that is a contribution to this time. And also include your activism. Often activism is not paid, but yet it is very important, as well as your volunteering. So take all of your plants in your garden. One question is, what is the fruits or offerings of these plants? Do a little bit of appreciative inquiry, a little bit of um, abundance looking, seeing all the gifts of these plants, of your offerings. Then what stages are these plants in? You know, that could be useful. And also, what are the ones that are in relation? What are the companion plants or the plants that support each other? For example, the upstream podcast plant that I have is supportive of right livelihood coaching. Folks will listen and then reach out for light, right livelihood coaching. So those are companion plants in my garden. Once you've done an inventory of your plants, then comes to questions around how would you like to tend to your garden? What is your title of your garden? What is your mythopoetic identity? What is the 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 phrase painted on the the wooden sign outside your garden you know mine says renegade economist what does yours say so what is your calling your mythopoetic identity and then how do you want to tend to these plants 
Which would you like to water? Which would you like to give some more time and attention to? Which plants would you like to plant? So maybe you're noticing that you could use a companion plant. Your work is very heady or very on the computer and you want to plant something more embodied or more outdoor. Maybe your plant, some of your main plants are very solitary and you'd like to plant a more communal or a partner-based plant or a team-based plant. Maybe you need a plant, a plant that generates more financial abundance for you in your life. I'm acknowledging that we do have our needs need to be met in very financialized ways right now. So what are the plants you could plant that would support with that? Which plants do you want to prune? Which have been overgrown, which are kind of crowding out? What do you want to snap or break off? Where do you want to guide your energy towards? That's that kind of metaphor of pruning. And then which are ready to be composted? And this can really be like, you know, this work has been extractive or exploitative on me or on others or on the planet. You know, how could you compost that plant, honor it, let it be, let it go into the soil and nutri be nutrients for the soil. So which, which of the plants need to be composted? What do you want to honor and, and relinquish? And then finally, too, how is the health of your soil? So how is the current health of your soil, which is your self-care? You know, we cannot par pour from an empty cup. So sometimes our soil needs to rest or it needs replenishment. So how is the health of your soil? How do you currently care for your soil? And then how would you like to amend your soil? What support would you like to ask for or receive? So I invite that as a more expanded way of thinking about your livelihood, both to appreciate all of the ways that you do contribute to this time, to do a little of assessment of like, what might you need to plant that could be more supportive? And even stacking functions, you know, permaculture reference, what could be mutually beneficial or supportive? And then how do we make sure that we're tending to your soil so that you can serve in this time? Because the world needs you right now. I just, I offer mm -hmm. that. But I think to your exact question of like, how does someone directly align? I think it's different for each person. Some people try to change places from within. Some people try to create something for themselves. Some people try to find companion plants that support a flourishing garden. Also, diversity builds resilience. So I would really recommend lots of flourishing plants. But yeah, those are some reflections to your beautiful question. Yeah, I love that because I think we've been so conditioned to like say our one-liner, our 15-second elevator pitch of this is what I do. And to be able to say there's many things that I do and not all of them bring an income, but, but, many of, but all of them are really important. So I think one of the things I wanted to ask you is that, you know, for so many of us who are working in areas of social impact, the work is often directed towards what we can measure on a relatively short time scale. And so, you know, across much of philanthropy, there's this idea of like strategic investments with an assumption that you can narrowly define a problem and come up with ROI metrics to assess whether the dollars invested are actually solving the problem and creating the change that you want created. And it's often without consideration for the potentially negative consequences or externalities of solving that problem in such a narrowly defined way. And so, for example, one of the things we've talked about is like, the electrification of the U.S. economy might result, will likely result in the destruction of communities and environments in the global South. And so, you know, and and I suppose it's, you know, I'm not sort of vilifying philanthropists or nonprofits. It's sort of 
you know, if they didn't operate in this way, they would probably cease to get more funding and cease to exist. But I guess my question is, is for someone who is wanting to address some social issue and perhaps is needing to raise funding in order to do it, it seems to me they have to participate in this practice of continuing to narrowly define and measure metrics in a very reductionist sort of way. And so what like, what is one to do, <laughs> do you think? Really brilliant question. Again, bringing up paradoxes of our time. So, okay, just as in the regenerative livelihood garden model, you may have multiple plants with multiple gifts, and you may have a few plants that do not generate financial fruit, such as parenting or art making or activism or volunteering. One might plant a plant that does generate financial fruit that hopefully is not extractive or exploitive, but supports the other work that you do by way of helping you meet your needs, meet some of your needs, your financialized needs. So fortunately, we have a model in the business realm that that is similar to this idea. So just to, again, state the challenges. So what I'm hearing you say is that you have a lot of folks who are mission-driven, who care about a social or environmental cause, and yet feel bound by the funding, whether it's donations or grants. They're tied to specific metrics, often short-term in thinking. They need to be quantifiable. You know, the complex, the deep, the holistic, the long time frame is often not appreciated or funded, right? So acknowledging that. We also have the problem that we spoke about earlier, where growth of profit, growth of the economy is causing ill health to people on the planet. So fortunately, there's a model that combines these two problems. The not-for-profit business model is a model where you have a business that does not generate profit to private shareholders and does not have any owners. So no one is taking profit or wealth out of the company or out of the business. Instead, 100% of the profit is redirected, harnessed, siphoned to social and environmental good. And that that money is liberated funding. It's not tied to ROIs or, you know, specific metrics or grant restrictions. It is unrestricted funds so that nonprofits or people with mission-driven causes can actually do the work they want to do. Just to uplift uh, one book, Anand Gerdilis' book, Winners Take All, uh, in it he, he, he mentions so clearly that he says, if we continue to try to fund Mission, mission-driven causes, social environmental good causes with the current way we're doing it through capitalist philanthropy, we will never actually create the change we want to seek because foundations will never actually fund projects that would change the status quo from which they benefit from. It won't happen. Yep. Our hands will continuously be tied. So we need to move into unrestricted funds. And this is the way to do it, the not-for-profit business model. And then I want to zoom out for a second to think about this systemically, because that's on the like business level. We talked about the individual level in our gardens, the business level there. But there's this beautiful modeling one can do through systems modeling that'll show that the for-profit mechanism of capitalism is what is creating um, extreme wealth inequality and rising wealth and, and income inequality. It is what is creating environmental degradation, as we spoke about earlier. It's also creating corporate consolidation because corporate power and the kind of big fish effect of eating all the little fish. It's also creating the problem of corporate capture. If we simply change this one element of capitalism, 
abolishing the for-profit mechanism and imperative, and we move to a not-for-profit economy, we no longer have environmental degradation, political capture, corporate consolidation, or rising wealth inequality because that money, that profit, is not siphoned out of the real economy. It is instead circulating and flowing to where that money is needed. So just to say, this is kind of like a post-growth model, and there's a lot of folks doing work on this, including Jennifer Hinton. She wrote a book called How on Earth, Imagining a Not-for-Profit World by 2050. I just want to say that's that. So, so what I would say to someone who's saying I care about environmental social justice issue, the grant funding that I'm getting is restrictive or it's not supportive. I would say one, is there a business that you could partner with where they could give their funding to you, their profit, right? Like I'm not talking about 1% for the planet. I'm talking about 100% for the mm-hmm. planet. You know, they're paying, mm. they're paying wages, they're paying supply chains. They don't need to continue to make that profit. This is what Patagonia did. They, they put 100% of their profit into mission-driven causes related to environmental justice. So that's, that's one example of this. But yeah, what, what's a business that one could connect with or what's a profit-generating activity that, that one in, in this case could do that could provide unrestricted funds to be able to do the work you want to do in the world? So I think the Patagonia example is a really interesting one because there's been, you know, they've been in the media a lot in recent months with their recent transition towards exactly what you just mentioned. But at the end of the day, they're still a for-profit company that exists and makes money because they sell things. And yes, they're doing it in much more sustainable ways than many other companies are. And, you know, they're working on recycling materials and secondhand goods and all of these things. But they're still operating as a public corporation in the capitalist economy. So I guess I guess I'm curious as to is that even is that even possible? Like, can you be a for-profit corporation in our current capitalist economy doing actual social good? Or is it that there, no matter what you do, you're still going to have some sort of extractive presence on the planet? So my, my understanding, but I think maybe we, we need to case study this a little bit, is that they were yeah. a private for-profit company, but they never went on the open market like they never had like they never went public on the stock market so to speak and then and then what happened was they and this is how they phrase it they made earth their only shareholder and so what i believe that means is they actually became a not-for-profit business because it means that a hundred percent of profits are now directed towards their earth-oriented activity so they are actually no longer for profit. It's their profit is redirected to en- environmental and social good. The only the or the thing left that's a challenge is that they are still managed mostly by the family. So they're still kind of a like like a traditional nonprofit hierarchical and lack of transparency. They could transition to being like a worker self-directed nonprofit bringing in more voices and more collective decision making. So that is a challenge. Mm -hmm. But I hear you that when we look at capitalism, I find it useful to take capitalism, you know, put it out there and then look at all the different parts and elements and what is helpful and what is unhelpful. So you mentioned like, you know, biomimicry or ecological design, the circular economy, weaving that in like for Ikea. What if every Ikea furniture was returned to Ikea at the end of its life cycle so that it could be reused into a thing? That would be one element. That's like one component of it. 
there's the profit activity. Is it for profit or is profit redirected to social or environmental good? Is it a traditional nonprofit? Then there's the ownership, right? Who owns it or who makes decisions? Is it sociocratic? Is it horizontal, et cetera? There's the marketing, right? Like, and are they still creating a sense of false needs by way of their marketing to Mm -hmm. be able to sell? You know, that's a question too. Or are they meeting needs that people have for clothing? You know, I don't really know. That would be kind of a deeper cultural question, maybe. What's the nature of the the conditions of the of the labor? Right? Is it sweat sweatshop labor, or is it, you know, organic, sustainable, and fair trade? You know, so these are all elements that we could interrogate and question and continue to to work on. Absolutely. Yeah, I think those are all really good questions. So let's shift a bit to talking about another aspect of your work. I know that you trained under the brilliant Joanna Macy, who is the root teacher of the work that reconnects. How would you kind of describe the core teachings of her work for anyone that's not familiar? Yeah. So yes, Joanna Macy is a eco-justice Buddhist philosopher and activist in her 90s. She's right across the bay from me in California. And I would say that she really went upstream to the root causes of the challenges of our time and really found that central to that is disconnection. That we've had, you know, as I talked about the supremacies, right? Capitalist supremacy, white supremacy, human supremacy, patriarchal supremacy. We go upstream from that, we find disconnection. And so her work, the work that reconnects, is about reconnection, remembering who we are and remembering ourselves to the web of life. So ultimately, it's embodied practices that invite us to see ourselves in relation to ourselves, in relation to one another, and in relation to the more than human world in a much more reconnected sense where we are not better than nature or separate from or different from others, but instead we are yet we are but humble members in the web of life. So remembering ourselves to our place in the universe is one way I would describe the work that reconnects. I've studied a bit of Joanna Macy's work in the last couple of years. And one of the things that she talks about is this concept of interbeing. And I'm wondering if you could touch on that a little bit. I absolutely could. And I'm going to do it through a little a little poem. So this is, mm, this is from Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, late great Zen master, but he would say, if you look at this paper, if you are a poet, you can clearly see that there is a cloud floating in this piece of paper. For without the cloud, there would be no water. Without the water, there would be no tree. And without the tree, this piece of paper would not exist. So in this way, we can see that the cloud and the paper inter are. And then we can go deeper to see that the logger who cut the tree to make this paper inter is with this piece of paper or this piece of paper would not be here without that logger. We can see that their daily bread, that their mother and father, we can see that all things actually inter are with this piece of paper. So inter being is inter and to be together. And it's this way of seeing that we inter are with all that exists, that when we breathe out, a tree breathes in. We can also see that we are not isolated, rugged individuals like Homo economicus, but we are actually a great symbiosis of beings. Right on your skin right now, there are, there's tons of life teeming on the surface of your skin. There's life teeming in your guts, in our, in our guts. 
So it's this way that we are a great symbiosis and we are living in widening circles of reciprocity with a wider and wider symbiosis, which some call Gaia or the living earth. So we are part of the living earth. So that's what this this web of life means. But absolutely, we enter our with all that is. And seeing ourselves that way, another way to say this, thinking systemically is another perspective and a way that we can open up more to the pain and the suffering coming through the webs of life, but also through the hope and the sense of connectedness. So it's both like an honoring of the pain of the web of life, but it's also a deep source of radical empowerment that we are not alone in these times and that we are acting on behalf of the living whole as the living whole. Beautiful. I love that. You know, one of the things that Joanna Macy talks a lot about is the three pillars of the great turning, which I think is a really helpful framework for many of us that are sort of struggling to figure out like what what can I do in this time that contributes to that? So I'm wondering if maybe you could first sort of talk about what the great turning is and, and then the three pillars that she talks about and and perhaps relate it to how someone who might be thinking about what is it that I can contribute? Like what what is it? How how can how can people show up at yeah. this time? So one way of seeing our time on Earth right now is that this is the time of the great turning. And it's a, it's a phrase or a frame that acknowledges unravelings that are happening. The great unraveling, too, is also happening. So all the ways that our systems are unraveling, political, ecological, social, and yet it's saying, let us not let that be the last story. So the great turning is an acknowledging and an honoring of the unraveling that's happening and a turning towards love and life in every moment of every day. So the great turning is moment to moment, it's interpersonal, it's inside ourselves, and it's also systemic. How do we turn towards more life-supportive, regenerative systems in our planetary ways of being? So the great turning is a phrase or frame for this time. And everyone listening, you can see yourselves as part of the great turning. It's radically inclusive. And we could even frame this whole conversation as an economics for the great turning. So within the great turning... Joanna offers these three pillars, as you said, are three areas of the great turning, three ways that we can view our actions or efforts in the world. They are all of equal importance. So wherever you are feeling called is right on. One of those areas of the great turning is the area of holding actions, holding actions, which is actions or efforts that stop further harm and suffering from happening or heal harm and suffering that has happened. It could also be push back, like push on harm and suffering that is happening. So it's defensive, it's a little offensive, it's revolution. It is those who are our activists, right? So I'm thinking of the standing protectors at the water protectors at Standing Rock. I'm thinking of those in Cop City. I'm thinking of Extinction Rebellion and Fridays for Future, you know, land defenders, indigenous land defenders around the world. So that is stopping further harm and suffering from happening or pushing on harm and suffering that has happened. It's also exposing harm and suffering that has happened. So whistleblowers, journalists, right? People, I, academics too, can be people exposing harm and suffering that is happening. And that arena can also be the healing of harm and suffering that has happened. So these are our, you know, healing modalities, social workers, psychologists, therapists, restorative justice, right? Truth and reconciliation work, reparations, that whole realm. 
So that's the first realm. Stop further harm and suffering from happening, pushing back on harm and suffering from happening, identifying, exposing, and healing. Maybe that's an area you have worked in or you are feeling called to do in this realm in this time. The second area of the great turning is the area of systems design. So designing systems, ways of living in all realms of our life that are more regenerative and just and sustainable and thriving. So in the education arena, which I know you you know about, it's that the forest schools, the seven-layer food forests in schools, it's the unschooling and the Steiner and Waldorf schools. It's just all the ways that people are rethinking education. In our political systems, it's participatory democracy, participatory budgeting, citizens' assemblies. In our businesses or organization structures, it's the not-for-profit business. It's the worker self-directed nonprofit. It's the worker cooperative realm. In our finance or banking system, this is the complementary currencies, the public banking movement, right? All of that. Credit unions. So it's in every area of a life, whatever industry you're in, what are the ways of, of working in that industry that are more regenerative and just? right? So those are the systems design realm. And then the third area of the great turning is the realm of the shift in consciousness, shift in consciousness. So what is it about our worldviews, our paradigms, our ways of seeing what's happening in the world that need to shift? So this is the area of artists and poets, spiritual leaders. Thich Nhat Hanh's interbeing, that's an example of a shift in consciousness. Joanna Macy, web of life, the ecological self, indigenous wisdom, seven generation thinking, right? These are all ways of seeing and thinking that invite alternatives. This is also parenting, parents raising children with alternative ways of being and living in the world. So this is poets and teachers, academics as well, um, spiritual leaders, singers, right? Musicians, artists, that whole realm. So working on that shift in consciousness realm. So I invite you who are listening to contemplate where are you feeling called? And I love this quote by Frederick Buchner. He says, we are called to the place where the world's deepest hunger meets our deepest joy, right? And so the world's deepest hunger is showing up differently for each of us based on our own familial lineages, community lineages, what we're seeing, what we're noticing, what heartbreak we're experiencing. So maybe it's around gender, maybe it's around racial justice issues, maybe it's around a certain environmental challenge of our time. So where are you feeling called? Where is the world's heartbreak showing up in you? And then where does that meet your deepest sense of joy or gladness when you come alive? You know, do you really love working in a soup kitchen or supporting folks as a coach or a therapist? Or maybe it's systems designing, it's innovating, it's creating new, new products that are um, cradle to cradle, you know, that are circular economy based or ways of communicating that are more nonviolent and, and just, or maybe it's in the shift in consciousness realm. Maybe it's artistic or inviting paradigms or worldviews or storytelling that is in supportive for ways of seeing and being in the world that are more regenerative and just. So where are you feeling called? And just acknowledging that all three are of equal importance. How can we weave and support each other in them? I have a little hunch that the first realm, the realm of the holding actions, has the greatest potential for burnout because it's the realm that is closest to the pain and suffering of our time. So if you are not called to that area, how do we support those folks in that area to make sure that they don't burn out? How do we support them in the other arenas? So yeah, those are the three areas of our time of the great turning. 
And I, I love this framework so much because what it also brings up for me is that you don't have to pick one. Like you don't have to pick one to focus on. You can at different points in your life be working on all three or one or two and you can sort of weave in and out of them depending on what's real for you in your current life. And so I guess related is Danella Meadows, who is another great system scientist and theorist who famously co-authored the Limits to Growth Report in the 70s, which laid out possible scenarios for life on Earth if humanity continued to kind of grow indefinitely. And she's been a really great inspiration for me as I've sort of started to put the pieces together of how different crises are kind of intersecting. And she talked a lot about key leverage points for systems change. And so I'm curious as to how you sort of think about those key leverage points alongside Joanna Macy's Great Turning framework. Mm, yes. So I just want to invite all of us to dive into that essay, Leverage Points, Places to Intervene in a System. It's a beautiful invitation to look at whatever system you're in and to analyze it based on these leverage points and then also where you might intervene. And they are ranked in order of effectiveness, according to Danella Meadows. And she really yeah, ranks them in order of effectiveness, but they're also in reverse order of difficulty. So that's what she says is that the top, top ones are the most difficult. The third highest from the top, which sometimes I also call acupuncture points. I love that phrase too. Mm -hmm. Third highest from the top is changing the goal of the system. And I think that's really what we've been talking about, about instead of growth being the goal, let growth be in service of the goal, right? That's that growth agnostic. So changing the goal to the donut, right? The meeting of human needs within the boundaries, changing the goal to gross national happiness as they do in Bhutan or the economy for the common good in Austria or the future uh, or the well-being of future generations in Wales or Buen Vivir in Latin and South America. There's people in places all over the world who are changing the goal to, to happiness and well-being for people on the planet. What does this mean to your life? Is what are, What's the goal of your life? Like what is most important to you right now and what are your metrics? I think that's a, a beautiful invitation for us all to consider because there are ways that we internalize capitalism that we take on these views of what is progress or what is what is the good life, right? So inviting that in for each mm -hmm. of us. The second highest leverage point from the top is the, tr is the changing paradigms. So that shift in consciousness, perspective, that third area of the great turning. And so how I make sense of that is sometimes I'll say like the first area of the great turning is the holding actions. That's what we want to say no to. The second realm, the, sh the systems design, is what we want to say yes to. And then the third is like the undercurrent or the operating principles or values that we need to practice or embody or shift in order to make that transition. And why that's important is because oftentimes we'll find that if we have our activism, our no, but it still Im invokes the, the capitalist mentality or the, the extractive or exploitative paradigm, it, it might not be so helpful. Like, for example, Robert Persig, who wrote Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, he says, if we destroy a dictatorship, but we don't destroy the quality of thinking that created it, a new one will simply pop up in its place. If we take down a factory, but we don't destroy the quality of thinking that created it, a new one will simply pop up in its place. So that speaks to that no is important, but if we don't have this shift in, in worldview, 
What, what world will we then create? Sarah Corbett says, if we want our world to be beautiful, just, and kind, we need our activism to be beautiful, just, and kind. Then in the systems design realm, this is the challenge. If we have these new systems, but we don't destroy, we don't destroy, we don't change the underlying operating principles or the values beneath them, we could simply have like an ethical capitalism or a green capitalism, right? It doesn't fundamentally change the system. It just looks a little bit different. This is greenwashing, right? So that second leverage point, changing the paradigm or worldview, is is very important. And in case you're wondering, well, what's higher than that? Like, what's higher than changing the paradigm? Her number one uh, acupuncture point to change a system is the power to transcend paradigms. And I'm reading here. She says, there is one leverage point even higher than changing the paradigm. That is to keep oneself unattached in the arena of paradigms, to stay flexible, to realize that no paradigm is true, that everyone, including that one that sweetly, sweetly shapes your own worldview, is a tremendously limited understanding of an immense and amazing universe. So I read that because sometimes I'll start my economics classes by writing, this is not the truth with a capital T. Because mm -hmm. often when I come in and share, it can feel dogmatic or proselytizing or that I'm trying to convert, you know? And, and I want to yeah. invite a quality of playfulness, of challenging, of exploration. Like, yes, I, I want a thriving people and planet, but I don't know exactly how to get there. We don't, none of us have all the answers. That's what it means to be humble, right, in this endeavor. So to hold the truth lightly. So this ability to transcend paradigms, to stay open to learning, to admit when we're wrong, and to stay humble and willing to listen, even with people we don't even yeah. agree with. I think that's a necessary quality because then, too, if we, we could just have a new way of indoctrination and better than thinking in the new world as we did with the old. Yeah, I love that so much. And it's it's so core to what this podcast is intended to explore, which is this idea of like, how does change actually happen? How does it emerge? And you know, so many of us that are working in social impact spaces sort of feel so, so there's this like gripping, right? There's this like, I've got to figure out a way to make this happen, which is understandable given all of the destruction and all the harm that we're seeing. But it can also be counterproductive towards the change that we actually want to bring about in this world. Um, so I think one of the things that I think about a lot as a mom, um, of a, of a five-year-old is the world that he's going to grow up in and how I can raise and educate him to not only hopefully navigate through the many interrelated existential crises that we're facing, but also how he can contribute towards collectively co-creating and co-emerging this this more beautiful world. And so I'm just sort of curious if you have any thoughts to share on this question of what we as adults can do to support younger generations or future generations towards the emergence of something more beautiful. Well, I would first ask you <laughs> how you do it, because I believe that you are. I believe that you embody it, and I believe even in this offering of this podcast, but in all the ways you are doing this work, 
So I just want to uplift and celebrate that. I, I know that you are. And so I want you to turn the mic to yourself and maybe <laughs> share share for all of us how, how you do that. And yet I do want to echo that I, I hear you. And I have known a lot of parents who have said, you know, how do I talk to my child about the great unraveling? You know, how do I yeah. acknowledge the great unraveling and be with their pain and sense of hopelessness and anger and fear and grief that can come from that? So how do we hold each other in that? And one thing that I find heartening is this idea that, yes, we as humans can be homo economicus, but we also can be, you know, altruistic, kind, compassionate beings, that we have an ecological footprint and an ecological handprint, you know, so we have ways that we extract or take from the natural world, but we also have plants that we plant and seven-layer food forests that we support um, and gifts that we offer. So really reframing of like, you know, supporting our children to contribute and also the systems change again that allows for more people to have right livelihood and to contribute and i want to offer one little reading from a book michael ventura and james hillman they wrote a book called 100 years of psychotherapy and the world's only getting worse and this is a, a short story where michael ventura says his son comes home and says dad it's all just so messed up like the world's just so messed up like how are you doing this? Like, it's all just totally messed up. And this is what he says to his son. He says, son, we are living in a dark age and we may not see the end of it, nor are your children, nor your children's children. And our job, every single one of us, is to cherish whatever in the human heritage we love, to feed it and keep it going and pass it on, because this dark age isn't going to last forever. And when it stops, those people are going to need the pieces we pass on. They're not going to be able to build a new world without whatever we pass on to them, whatever we can. The ideas, art, knowledge, skills, how we treat people, how we help people, and if nothing else, love. Just plain old fragile love. That's something to be passed on. That's beautiful. It's making me tear up. <laughs> Is there anything you'd add by way of how you how you support <laughs> children in, in your life? Well, you know, one thing you mentioned is is Waldorf education. And so I'm lucky enough that my little preschooler can attend a Waldorf school that actually transitioned to being 100% outdoor during the pandemic and just found it to be so wonderful in so many different aspects that they've decided to continue that. And so we have this very blessed experience of our son getting to sort of experience what that's like. And he's actually, he's been, there's been a week off between, in between school ending and summer camp starting. And so I've been home with him this past week. And not surprisingly, he's wanted to spend like entire days outside, no matter the weather, which I think is beautiful. And he said something to me the other day that just melted my heart, where he said, Mommy, I'm so glad it's raining. Like it was it was a day where it was like raining heavily. And he was like, Mommy, I'm so glad it's raining because the plants and the grass and the flowers and the trees need water to live. And this is like a, a five-year-old. <laughs> and so I think, you know, I guess. All that to say, one of the things I try to do 
with my little one is just to be outside as much as possible. And it's nothing explicit, right? It's just to be outside and it's just to be grateful and it's just to be appreciative of whatever is happening that day, whatever the weather brings us that day, which I think is a connection that children sort of inherently have. And, you know, we often, as as we grow into adulthood and perhaps move into more urban areas, often lose that connection. But I think kids kind of always remind us to come back to that connection and the sort of interconnectedness of life. So yeah, that might be what I would say. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much. And yeah, you're reminding me one open sentence that Joanna Macy often invites is, finish this sentence, a place that was special to me as a child was. The place that was special to me as a child was. And often in workshops when we invite that, folks refer to some outdoor space, like whether it was their backyard or their neighborhood or a, a park or grandma's house, you know, some place that was really special to them. And that points to what we want to preserve, like our gratitude points to what we want to offer and preserve that's good in the world. So it can be anchoring and empowering. So thank you for that gift to your child and beyond. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Well, I know we are coming to the close of our time together. So I guess the last question I have for you is who might you like to platform on the podcast? Yes. So I'm sure it's been platformed before for will be again. Robin Wellkimmerer, I know, is on the East Coast where you are. But I want to platform not the typical book that one might think, Braiding Sweetgrass, amazing book and definitely in the shift in consciousness realm. But I want to platform a little-known essay of hers called The Service Berry, An Economy of Abundance, because she tells this beautiful story, and it's both in written form and audio. She has herself reading it, and it is a story of her picking berries outside and what she learns from the berries. So she learns about an economy of abundance and the gift economy, essentially from the robin, her namesake, but also from the service berries mm. around her and just does this kind of unlearning and rethinking economics in just this beautiful poetic way that I found so appropriate to the Wayseekers theme around indigenous wisdom and knowledge, but also looking forward to the future. So wishing, wishing everyone, you know, a sense of abundance. May you go outside and connect with nature as you do with your little one. And, and just appreciate the abundance and the gift giving of the birds, of the sun, of the plants in our lives. And may we be as, as abundant and, and gift giving and grateful as, as the natural world is for us. Thank you so much. I love that so much. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Della. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you again today. And I look forward to continuing to follow your work. Where can people find you to learn more about you and your work? I have a website, DellaZDuncan.com, and then we have the podcast, which is freely available, 100% free, documentaries and conversations, upstreampodcast.org. And we love to be mischievous on social media, memes and things. So you can follow us on any of the platforms at Upstream Podcast or at Duncan. Please stay in touch and get in touch and stay connected. Thank you so much, Della. Appreciate it. If you like the episode and want to hear more conversations where we explore how a more beautiful world might emerge, 
Subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app or the Entangled World Pod YouTube channel. If you loved it, support the project at patreon.com forward slash entangled world. Thank you for listening and for coming on this journey together.